0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: To try to rent or buy like 5, 10 of these smokers. And as part of the course, we can make, uh, say, ribs in the morning, uh, you know, uh, season them up, throw them on the Kamado Joe, because it takes three, four hours anyway. Right. Bam, bam, bam. Go to your course. And for lunch, you eat the ribs that you made. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, that's what I'm talking got... about.
0: We talk vein clinics, courses, and ribs with Dr. Aaron Shiloh and Dr. Aaron Fritz. So welcome to the Backtable Podcast. I'm your host, Dinesh Parikh. Uh, I'm the managing director of TEC, a startup studio that has helped bring Backtable to life. Here with me this week are Dr. Aaron Fritz and Dr. Aaron Shiloh. We're going to be talking about how to get started with a vein clinic. So first and foremost, thanks and welcome to Dr. Fritz and Dr. Shiloh.
1: Thank thanks you. for having us. Yeah, I guess maybe you want to figure out a way to, to differentiate between one Aaron and the other Aaron. Right. Yeah. You just go um, by? You could be, you could Shilo be, be a Ron if you want. I <laughs> <That> wouldn't be the <laughs> first. Uh, oh, listen, um, I, that, that it killed me. Doctor Shiloh,
0: Doctor Fritz tells me you've been involved in the Philly area in a, in, a, in a vein clinic for a little while, and we thought that. It'd be really interesting for our listeners to to learn more about that. An increasing number of them are are getting involved in clinics in their own area and are thinking about starting their own. So, you know, again, appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing with us. I guess if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to hear a little background on you and you know how you got started doing what you do in IR and and, and in your clinic. And um, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about that to start.
1: All right, great. Thank you so much, and uh, thanks for of course for having me on this. Uh, Excellent podcast. Um, Our pleasure. So just as a background, uh, I've been practicing as an interventional radiologist since 2003. I finished my training here in the Philadelphia area, and I joined a, at the time, a fairly large private practice group as the youngest IR guy and and someone to come in with some fresh ideas, et cetera. And in fact, in uh, retrospect, uh, my first meeting with my new partners, I presented them with a... Business plan for opening up a vein center. Now, that was in 2003. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, uh, radiology, I guess, was so lucrative, and uh, these gentlemen uh, who were my partners did not feel the need or had the desire to do something like that in the confines of a large radiology group where, you know, the work that you put in didn't necessarily translate into any real significant financial monetary gain on an individual level. So they basically said, well, uh, let's put that aside for now. And I guess I was forced to put it aside. And I spent years then building up uh, the interventional oncology practice in our group. And, and of course, we, we were very successful in doing so. And then over the years, we've, uh, we grew into a very, very large group. Now, as I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast is aware, medicine has evolved and changed dramatically over the last 15 years, and that's led to changes also in our group. So about four years ago or so, uh, our group was actually purchased by VRAD, which many people know is the uh, company that does almost all, if not most, of the overnight uh, teleradiology in the United States. And at that time, uh, once we sold our I guess I was looking for some other endeavor where I'd be able to uh, use my energy in a way that would uh, not only benefit me, say, financially, but also, and probably more importantly, benefit me in a professional satisfaction type of way. And and I can, you know, certainly um, expand upon that. And and, and what I'm saying is that... Yeah, like, what do you, I mean,
0: I guess... Two things about that. Well, you talked about a change in your group and you talked about a purchase. Was that the change or was there, was there a different change? And what about the group or, or that environment or whatever you were involved in wasn't kind of satisfying and was leading you to, to look for something else?
1: Well, as most of us as interventional radiologists know, when you're part of a multi-specialty radiology group, meaning you're involved with diagnostic radiologists and, and also interventional radiologists, no matter how you, you, you play it, in, i don 't know of any other groups, but in any group that i 'm aware of that 's a large group, the diagnostic integers account for the majority of the group let's say for the sake yeah. of simplicity it 's an eighty twenty split and so even in an egalitarian group where it 's democratic and the you know decisions are made by the group, no matter what that is, there's always going to be a uh, you know population bias where every decision that, no matter how sound it is, that may be, you know, better for the interventional radiologist isn't always agreed upon uh, just based on the fact that there's, you know, we are the 20% minority in any group. And uh, that becomes a very frustrating environment to practice in where your clinical work, your, your time spent, with generating uh, new you know, doctors to refer and, and just the clinical aspect of being an interventionalist is not valued in the way that it should be. And it, over time, it begins to be very, very frustrating and um, uphill climb. And even within my group, despite the fact that I am still and was the IR section chief as well as one of the managing partners in the group, was still one of four uh, managing partners and the other guys were imagers. And thus, no matter how you parse it, it's very difficult to convince people that your uh, approach is the proper approach. And, uh, you know, it's it's challenging. While, For example, while they're able to send imaging to Nighthawk and there's no one giving any overnight reads, we're still taking overnight call and there's no real, many times, no real... Uh, Reimbursement for that, or whether it's in time or money, and it begins to be very, very frustrating. Um, in addition, clearly, when you work in within the confines of the hospital, you're expected to essentially uh, you derive your your patients from what the hospital gives you. and and even to that, the biggest fallacy that I find is that you still to this day, and I think this exists in many groups, is that an interventionist must receive an order. For a procedure from a doctor, and it could be an intern could order you to do a XYZ procedure, where instead of consulting you and then looking for your opinion, and it's it's just a difficult way to go. Um, and so that the, uh, living under those confines and uh, becomes exceedingly more challenging as you become a little bit more mature in your overall practice. And you realize that you have some value as well. if not an an tremendous amount of value and you want to be able to practice uh, more independently and without the constraints and uh, the, the group, your, your, your administrators of the hospital and your, and your so-called partners. So, you know, many of those things all factor together and, um, you know, drove me to say, look, I'm going to take my day off a week, which is what it really amounted to. And instead of having, you know, working four days and having a day off a random day, I was able to convince and secure hit a day off, uh, which in my group happened to be a Tuesday. I picked the least uh, I would think desirable day. It's not Friday. It's not Monday. It's, it's a day that very few people ask off specifically, and say, look, I need this day every week so that I can schedule people properly and have a, you know, be able to get staff at my office uh, to work on a specific day of the week. And so uh, during that time of change, I was able to convince my partners as well as the hospitals and uh, the their VRAD that, you know, there's no harm. I'm not doing vain to the hospital. I'm not stealing any business. I'm basically just taking my day off. And, uh, you know, using my time to start this practice. And that's what really transpired at the
0: time. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that you, you know, you're an interventional radiologist, you're trained as a specialist, you end up like I think a lot of folks end up working in a group that isn't necessarily geared to the special the specialized training that you've received and that you've you know worked to accumulate over a number of years, and so the decisions it's I mean groups can always be complicated, like you said, they're political organizations by their nature, so there's you know there's no way around that. But when that group is really not geared towards your specialty, which is which has really individualized needs and that creates even more problems because you're not really able to you know flex your muscles in a sense and so what's pretty remarkable there is you're able to carve out an entrepreneurial niche inside of your group that had just been acquired like you said and we're able to get that whole thing started um i I guess so along those lines what did it take to start that up uh how did you how did you go about that how did you even know what to do i mean how'd you how'd you do the research
1: That's a great question and something that um, i 've even uh, spoken to to uh, Dr. Fritz or Aaron about in the past because it 's not uh as easy as hanging up a shingle and expecting the doors to never close because people are going to flood in because all of a sudden Dr. Shiloh opened up a vein practice so uh, it did take a lot of time and effort uh you know like fortunately, I had some help um, as far as uh you know, getting a, a lay of the land, and and I would advise people to do what I did, which I think is to reach out to uh, your uh, local reps for companies that specialize in that field, because obviously your success is tied to their success, uh, especially for a local rep who may be looking for obviously the more the more catheters that you buy. The more you know, they make, and certainly a new venture is is a great uh, opportunity for them. So it's not, oh, I hope that Doctor X does another couple cases this month because he he or she does fifteen. And I hope they get to the twenty. It's wow, there's a new doctor around, and even if he or she starts with just five cases a month over a year, that's sixty cases, and maybe the following year they double to ten, and you know that that's a tremendous opportunity for them. And the benefit of that is that. The local reps have, if they're really in the, that space, the vein space, they have been to, let's say, 50 other offices or whatever the number may be, and they see what works and doesn't work. And you know, if they're if they're smart about it, they can help you with saying, "Hey, look, uh, you don't need." a twenty thousand dollar lifting table, but rather you can spend two thousand dollars on a stretcher and get to the same point, especially initially where you're looking at a not I maybe mean, not an immense financial outlay per se, but at least you're you're gonna spend money uh to open up your practice. And if they can say, look, you don't, you know, a thousand square foot office is sufficient and, you know, as I said Using that as an example, you don't need a two twenty thousand dollar table that that uh, can move into every position. But if you have a stretcher that can go into Trendelenburg or reverse Trendelenburg, and you can manipulate it with your foot, you can get it at a fraction of the cost, and it works just as well. So my, you know, that was one of the biggest things that I did is I reached out to one of my local reps who happened to be uh, working at the time for Cavidian or Venus Venus, and now Covidian and then subsequently Netronic, the but. I reached out to her and you know, she was very helpful in, you know, giving me many tips and contacts of this person and that person, this is who you should get your, uh, you know, overall supplies from. I know this person, I know they have a cheap, you know, that just that kind of stuff that I've seen that in Dr. X's office, they have a, this or that, and that works great, but I've been to Dr. Y's office, and boy, they have 3,000 square feet, but they're wasting their space because they see one patient in one room and do a procedure in another, and they have five rooms that are not being used. So, you know, it was that kind of uh, information that was very, very helpful in the beginning so that I didn't spend too much. And I, and I, and I think I did some of the right things in the beginning so as to not overextend myself, particularly given it was only one day a week.
0: Okay. Gotcha. So, I mean, the reps were really helpful as well as the rest of the community in helping to put together your initial business plan
1: right i mean you know i generated a wrote out a business plan which i think is very important i mean i'm not a business person and i'm sure most of us are not um there there are many you know useful and relatively inexpensive and or free tools nowadays available to to do that um and it doesn't have to be a complicated thing but you know just making lists of items that you need and uh you know uh tasks that need to be done and and getting insurances set up and and things like that uh you know once you have that in place um, you know, you can then hopefully, you know, swing the doors open, but that's just the first step, obviously in, in getting, in becoming successful. in what you do is now you have this office and, but it needs to be fed, you know, that is in my right. opinion, actually the most critical element. Of of being successful is how do you feed this business? Uh, you know the cases turn out to be actually relatively the easiest part of the whole thing, performing actual procedures because uh, we're all good at that. We're all very good at that, most of us, and we're all good with our hands. We've done thousands of procedures. That part is not complicated in the end relative to some of the other stuff that we do however you know you got to get a patient through to to be laying there with their leg exposed ready to have the procedure done and that's not doesn't just happen overnight and and actually requires multiple angles of attack
0: yeah you became a ceo overnight i mean of a a small business i mean you you opened up a small business and you had to do all of the things that go along with running a small business which you know In some cases, can mean you know doing something as simple as taking out the trash, right? Because it just has to get done, and you know maybe something didn't show up that day.
2: I just want to cut in along those lines. I just had a quick question as Aaron was talking. Um, Aaron, when I first started um, thinking about opening my vein clinic, I had uh, you know I'd, I'd seen some of your postings on LinkedIn, so I knew you were involved. I also had reached out to a couple other interventional radiologists I knew who were, who were running bay clinics like Rick Daniels and uh, Vasu Rao down in Houston. I, my question is, when when you first started, did you have anybody that kind of acted as mentors as you guys have, have for me?
1: You know, it's it's interesting that you asked that, and, and it's actually interesting that you mentioned Rick, because Rick and I are actually friends, and we practice not that far from each other. I know you're down in Texas, so Philly to New Jersey, you, you couldn't tell how far that is, but in reality, it's not very right. far. And... Uh, and so I, I knew Rick, and, and Rick was actually transitioning to opening up uh, his own slightly larger vein Center at the same time. But I also had, uh, you know, some other colleagues here and around town, um, someone who uh, trained a year ahead of me. Uh, his name is Andy Kwok, and he had opened up a vein Center, sort of uh, served as a inspiration. I mean, he'd done it uh, many years previously and had sort of, uh, done a similar thing. He started two days a week. He was an attending at the University of Pennsylvania and he started two days a week. And then I guess after three, I, I don't know the exact time period, but three or four years, he finally decided to break free and do his own thing. And, and one of the actually most um, poignant things that Andy said to me, which is, which I now realize is totally true, is that when you have your own office, the patients are your patients. You're no longer receiving an order from someone else to do something. Now you have your patients and you actually have the power to send them for an ultrasound at hospital X or Y. You have the power to send them to a CAT scan if they need it to hospital X or Y. You have the power to refer them to other people instead of being the person who's always on the receiving end. And with that comes a lot of satisfaction and a lot of uh, you know, again, power and and, and and confidence that you gain from being uh, your own boss and also having your own patients. I don't need Dr. So-and-so uh, to tell me what to do. These patients come to me for my opinion and potentially to be treated. And then once they're in my office, they're my patients and I don't need anybody else's uh, approval or help to, to take care of them. And, and that Truthfully, it's something that Andy basically, you know, uh, told me and inspired me. And and now, three, four years later, I totally understand what Andy's talking about because there's a massive difference between the days in my office where they're my patients, I get them, they've come to me, and because they've chosen to come to me, and not because they've accidentally wandered into my ER for something or other and are now forced to come to me because of their proximity to me, which is that they're laying in a hospital bed and they need X, Y, Z done. And I'm the one who happens to be there. So there really is a a tremendous amount of personal satisfaction that you get from knowing that these people are are your patients. They've come to you by choice and they, uh, you know, and, and they appreciate you and you appreciate them. And it's a completely different relationship that you establish when you do that. You get continuity. You see these patients through the process. Uh, and, and it, like I said, it just really becomes a, a completely different, um, entity and you feel differently about those patients and that office than you do working in the hospital.
2: Okay. Yeah. And so along those lines, um, how did you initially plan to market yourself and get those referrals?
1: Well, so that's another thing that I learned a lot about over three years, because again, as, a, you know, kind of in an maniacal way, I, I assumed that since I had a fairly good reputation around Philadelphia, I mean, I was had been here and practiced for over 10 years in the area. A lot of people knew who I was. I, I, I knew a lot of doctors and they had a lot of confidence in me. I, I thought, okay, I'm going to hang the shingle up and the cases are going to come flooding in the door. They're just going to say, wow, we've been waiting for this. And here we go. Here's all these patients. And at least for me, I can't speak for everyone else, it didn't really materialize in that way. Uh, we started out initially taking care of a lot of friends and family and finally uh, went out and did many lunch and learns at doctor's offices and we went to uh, you know, different facilities. I had my staff go when I couldn't go. Again, I worked with the local reps to try to uh, facilitate some of these things. We had doctor dinners, all the traditional things, That we've been taught or or told that is the you know the uh, key to getting more patients. And while I don't dispute the fact that relationships with local physicians is a very important thing, um, I would caution anyone who thinks that because they're friends with doctor X or Y, they're going to send you vein patients. And it's it's for two reasons. One. They are so busy that veins is something that, unfortunately, are not taught in medical school to anybody. They're not taught in most residencies, and even in IR residencies I'll speak for myself. We know nothing about superficial vein disease in my practice, and that was, you know a, long, a while ago, but still there was not being taught. And so if we don't learn it, how do you expect a family practice doctor to think of varicose veins as anything other than a cosmetic problem, which is how it's primarily presented? So for two reasons. One, they're very busy now. They're staring at their EMR and not at the patient's legs. And B, their their um, you know pre-existing uh, bias is that it's a cosmetic problem, and maybe they would reserve in the old days, a vein stripping, you know, pulling out the GSV for those patients who really, really had it bad. So if you really had bad disease, well, then maybe they kind of said, oh, wow, your leg looks bad. I'll send you to a vascular surgeon and they'll do a vein stripping. Well, as we all know, that's not the standard of care anymore. And so I guess for those two reasons, I think that no matter how good you are and how good your, your relationship is with your local referring docs, family docs, whomever they may be, Uh, I would caution you to expect that that would be uh, the mechanism that in and of itself would allow your vein practice to stay in business. So that's what we kind of did for the first year. I mean, I had a website, we were doing a little bit of, of some, you know, internet marketing and, uh, but it it wasn't really working great. And after we had started to exhaust our friends, family and some of the local referring docs, you know, I was concerned as to how we were going to continue to, to feed the beast, so to speak. So after about a year, I basically made the decision to change my approach a bit. And I switched the company that was doing my website and Google PPC and SEO and all these keywords and all that other stuff to a company uh, locally that I was kind of familiar with. But, um, and so, we made a big switch, which was you know a little scary because again, to Anisha 's point, we were not, I was not born a CEO of a small business, so to fire right. somebody uh, and rehire somebody, you never we, we were never trained how to do that what 's the right decision, what type of data do you need to get to figure that out so uh, you know it was a scary proposition, but certainly one that was necessary, and once we made that switch. Boy, man, once we did that, I mean, uh, patients, the phone calls started to pick up and the patients started coming in to the point where after about a year after switching companies, I was then forced to make a decision and I started doing two days a week in my vein clinic, which meant that I had to buy my group. I had to go to my group and say, hey, look, I want to buy, quote unquote, more vacation days. It's not really vacation because I'm working in my office. But as far as they're concerned, I'm not at the hospital, so I'm not. So I'm not working, so I'm on vacation. But what I was doing is making a mental calculation uh, or not so much mental, but also, uh, you know, looking at the numbers and saying, can I make more in a day at my vein center than I'm getting paid on a, let's say prorated or a daily rate? from my group. And if that number is higher, well then, you know, you got to go for that. And, uh, that's, that's how I finally went and said, look, I can't do this one day a week. I'm, I'm seeing 18 patients. I'm running around like a lunatic. I'm starting at eight and working till eight and I'm never finishing. So I wanted to just, uh, you know, get another day. And, And that's how it went to two days a week.
2: I want to get into the equipment just a little bit. Yeah, you know, there's several options uh, for varicose vein treatment on the market. There's EVLT, there's RFA, uh, mechanical sclerotherapy with the Clarivane. There's even the the steam ablation. And I just wanted to know, um, you know, I know you, it sounds like you chose the RFA ablation, but just reasons why, and it, was it because of a recommendation, or what did you uh, did you have to research it too much? Um, how did you make that decision?
1: I mean, I think it's an excellent question, but and, and my answer to you is the following thing. I mean, first of all, I think when you're first starting a new endeavor, uh, considering all the other things you have to figure out, I think it makes you, in my opinion, I wanted to do something that I was most comfortable with, that I understood, that I, the technology made sense to me, and considering that as interventional radiologists and myself – I had been using radiofrequency ablation for tumors, soft tissue tumors, for many, many years. Obviously, now I do microwave, but still, I, I understood the way it worked. And I also did a little bit of data research and realized that at least, from, again, I'm not going to disparage EVLT because there have been, I'm sure, thousands and thousands of excellent EVLTs done. But at least if you review the data and the literature, it suggests that uh, at least for patients in the first month or two, RF ablation is a much more tolerated procedure than EVLT. Now, the long-term benefit, I think the long-term uh, patency rates are about the same. However, if you think about it, you know, it's like opening up a restaurant. If, uh, if you have a, pay, mm-hmm. uh, a diner come in and your first meal that you make is a shitty, oh, I'm sorry, is a bad meal, then they're never going to come back and they're not going to refer a friend to come to you, their, their, your restaurant. So if, if I were to choose of two options, one, the less painful one, to the more painful one, I figured even though it's more expensive for me, I want to find the one that the patients are going to come back for their follow-up visit and say, my leg doesn't really hurt, I feel fine, and, but in, in fact it looks better and feels better, rather than, oh, I my leg is all bruised up and down, mean uh, it hurts like crazy because in our fibrillation, the temperature gets to 120 degrees Celsius, whereas in, in laser, it's two to three times as hot, and just based on that alone you end up with a bit more, uh, you know, just a little bit more clinical consequence to the patient early on. So that is how I made the decision. I figured at the same time, You know, yeah, could you offer everything? Of course you can. And maybe now I can offer two, two, three, four options. But when you're first starting, you know, I think when we all do it, it's best to learn one procedure, one technique, and master that one before you move on to every one of the other ones. So there are variances amongst EVLT, RF, uh, foam, uh, clarivane, uh, you know, now the newer ones, varicina, venusil. They all have their nuances. So it's difficult... To be expert in all, let's say five or six currently widely accepted techniques, all at once when you haven't done a single patient. So maybe after your hundred patients and you feel comfortable with a specific modality, you can now say, okay, let me see what this other one is about, and then start adding new treatment, uh, you know, new treatments to your your wheelhouse, uh, but initially I think it makes most sense to pick one and stick with it so that you become good at that and get a better understanding of the entire disease process in the process. And and then you can sort
2: of, uh, you know, expand into other types of treatments. Okay. Um, And then, you know, we were, you were talking about equipment earlier, like stretchers, for example, um, you know, and, and just trying to come up with, you know a list of things of equipment that you have to you have to purchase older sound machines being uh, another kind of a big purchase that, as I'm finding out. Um, did you buy new or refurbished or um, you know at what point did you find yourself needing you know a couple machines, or did you just stick with one for a while?
1: Uh, well, you know that's another very good question, and that's another time. Where I leaned on that in this particular point, the Medtronic rep, and I said to her, "Look, you know, again, what have you seen and where you practice? What type of machines? You know, and don't forget, you're not, you know, you don't need to buy a hundred thousand dollar machine that can do, you know, right upper quadrants and do kidneys and do, you know, biopsies and everything else. You need a machine that is sufficient." for what you need it for in that particular case, which is just to deal with superficial structures. And thus, you really need one machine and one linear probe. And the probes, as we all know in radiology, are where really you're spending a lot of money. So, uh, you know, again, leaning on her, she suggested that instead of going out to buy either a new or refurbished big machine, that I, again, in, in a smaller office, consider buying something that may not be as hardware driven and more software driven. And so that's how she pointed me into sort of this company that does, that has essentially laptops. They're souped up, uh, they're souped up MacBook pros that they make. And, uh, and it came with a, you know, again, a lot of other things are warranty issues. So you buy a refurbished GE, uh, for twenty five, thirty grand, well, it's going to come with a one year warranty, and then they say, well, every other year is three to five grand, whatever the numbers may be. It doesn't matter what it is, but if it's three thousand for each additional year, you got to factor that into the cost of the machine. So, if you think you're going to own the machine for five years and it's three grand for a subsequent yearly warranty, you're looking at another twelve thousand. So, yeah, it's twenty five thousand for the machine, uh, which comes with a one year warranty, but then it has. You know, an additional twelve grand, or something, or even if you negotiate down a little bit, you still have a very large amount of money you have to spend on warranties. So, in looking at it, I said, you know what? Let me find a company like the one I found that has a, a reasonable unit that would seem highly recommended by various people. That has is actually software driven, such that they can log on to your computer, and I'm sorry, to your ultrasound machine. And, and solve problems remotely. And then if you have a problem, they basically have a next day service. In other words, I call up uh, today and say, my machine's not working properly. Tomorrow I have a brand new machine in my office. I put the new machine, I take the new machine out, I put my machine in the same box, and I ship it back. And, you know, I use the machine until they either fix the one I have or say, keep it, and we'll deal with this one on our own. So that's how I went ahead and made that decision.
2: You know, and you touched on this a little bit earlier. Another thing that's a little bit kind of scary at the beginning, and I'm going through this right now, is trying to figure out staffing, Uh, you know, for a small office. um, How many people do you need? You know, do you need a receptionist and an MA, or can you get away with just an MA and, and maybe a floating ultrasound tech at first and then eventually hire an ultrasound tech? What was your approach with staffing at first? Well,
1: you know, it's interesting. Um, I, you know, in my case, I'm fortunate that, you know, my wife became, well, fortunate. (laughs) I mean, she's right around the corner. (laughs) Uh, You you can leave that in or cut it out. I don't care. But so (laughs) the bottom line is I was fortunate enough to be able to use my wife uh, as the office manager. Now, the downside is is my wife, other than hearing me answer phone calls in the middle of the night and asking what the creatinine is, didn't know the first thing about running an office. So there was a steep, steep we may have lost some money and in, in, you know, failure to authorize and various mistakes that you can make along the way. But at the same time, you know, having someone that I trusted in the office because at the end of the day, money is coming in and going out and no one's going to look at your money closer than you and maybe your wife. And so I, you know, I was fortunate to have that uh, as, as an assistant and she came from a hospitality background. So and I have to say that it's very important in this business to have a very friendly, smiley, hospitality-driven office because this is something that people have a choice in, just like you choose whether you want to stay at the Holiday Inn or the Ritz-Carlton, and you're making that decision based on how nice it is, how nice the people are, and it's not that much different when you're going in a consumer-driven uh, business like this, that you want to make sure that you have a good office. So it may not even be as important as to, <clears throat> the specific function of the people, but the type of people that you hire, they actually have to be people, people, they have to smile, they have to be friendly, they can't be disgruntled, at least not initially. I mean, you really need people that that want to be there, that are happy to be there. And even if that means overpaying a little bit, oh, the industry standard is $15 an hour for an MA. You know, I say fine. And you know what? Since we're very slow in the beginning, I'll say, okay, I'll give you, uh, you know, for every patient that we do, you'll get a $25 bonus, okay? So now they're excited whenever there's a case. They're happy about it. They want to get to the same point you're getting because, for that you know those two cases a day, assuming they went an hour, they, went, they got bumped up to forty dollars an hour, if you know what i 'm saying, so you know a good yeah. staff, a happy staff, is a very important element, not necessarily so much who they are, but if you want to know specifically, when I opened up, I had a receptionist slash office manager. And I had a uh, an i r tech that I knew who also was working this as her second job and uh, she and i 'd known her for fifteen years at the hospital and and I hired her immediately to be my assistant you know sort of right hand person and she does a lot of things as far as your question to an ultrasound tech while it would sound very convenient and logical to have. I, can't, I I can And I'm not making this up. I mean, I've heard this from many, many vein experts at many, many SIRs prior to doing this. you got to scan your own patients. As te- tedious and as labor-intensive as it is, it is so worthwhile in the long run for various reasons. The first is that you learn so much about venous anatomy by actually doing the scan yourself. And it's a little bit like being a detective because varicose veins up and down the leg, they can come and go from all kinds of veins. It's not just about the greater saphenous or the lesser saphenous. It could be about the AASV or it could be the PASV or it could be a, a perforator or all these things. And you will never learn about these things until you see them with your own eyes and convince yourself that, that this perforator above the ankle is the one that's causing this venous stasis ulcer that's just above it. And yeah, you know, you can get good texts, and I, I think there can be some amazing text again, the, the the scanning allows you to figure it out and it serves as part of the consult. So while I'm scanning the patient, I'm explaining to the patient about vein disease, why something's happening. People see it with their own eyes. We're very visual now. Everyone's got an iPhone, iPad, and then, uh, and things like that in their hand. I think they're capable of understanding what they're seeing on a screen. Uh, and so if you make it Evident to them, this is what you're seeing, and this is what's causing your vein disease. It's a lot easier to subsequently we sell them on, and this is how we're going to fix it. You're going to lay down on this bed, and I'm going to numb your leg and stick it 15 times with a needle, and then I'm going to burn it. And, you know, if you think you're not into sales, you soon realize that you absolutely are into sales. Because you have Every patient... The, the that they're going to come to your office, and while they're wide awake, you're going to burn their leg, no matter what, or if you're using the, the most commonly used technologies. So to that end, I think that an ultrasound tech is, number one, expensive, and, number two, uh, will make it so easy for you to just have them scan them that you're going to miss a lot of things that are actually relevant and
2: important to that particular patient's vein disease. Yeah, and I'm sure the patient really appreciates spending that kind of time with their doctor, you know, that they have to sit there and, and scan them and talk, talk them through it. So I'm sure that's a perk. Um, they go out oh, and tell their friends. Friend, think, um, think, think about
1: how many so, times you go to the doctor and wait, and they spend five minutes with you and then leave. I mean, you get 30 to
2: 45 minutes of my time. You know what I mean? And it's well worth it. Right. Yeah. Um, along those lines, did you have to do any sort of additional training? Like, do you need any sort of certification to actually – uh, do the scan yourself and submit it for payment, um, or is just being a, uh, a radiologist is enough to to, have, to be able to do that? I have
1: not had a problem getting paid for a single ultrasound, so I can only say that. Yeah. And I did not do any additional certification. I believe that as a board-certified radiologist and a board-certified interventional radiologist, I think that we're qualified to do a venous uh, reflux study. Uh, I think the whole RPVI concept was made, created for, uh, non, uh, radiology driven people to the, the family practice doc who becomes a phlebologist who, who doesn't know anything about ultrasound can get a, can get a certificate that says, Oh, I know about venous ultrasound. And I, you know, there's no, as of right now, I'm not saying that, you know, Medicare or the others can say, Oh, you need to be RPVI at some point to bill for these things in the future. But for the last three, four years, I haven't had a problem getting paid. Uh, on a single ultrasound that I've done, with the exception of the ones I've done on capitated patients, just because that I've sent them to the hospital and the report has come back so bad <laughs> that okay. I, uh, that I have to basically repeat it. Because they don't do it properly. And, and when they don't do it properly and you're looking, I mean, I can't even, my own group, my own group, the radiologists will sent me reports today. There are varicose veins located on the calf. And then in the next line, there is no venous reflux. They don't seem to understand that those two things can't be mutually exclusive. Okay, so the fact is that some ultrasound tech walked in, gave a uh, radiologist a report that showed no reflux, and he or she dictated it as there is no reflux. But we both know, Aaron, that if there are big varicose veins on the leg, there is reflux somewhere, and they just right. didn't find it or care to look for it, and now you're left with a report that won't allow the patient to actually get treated.
2: Yeah. Yeah, sorry, um,
1: that was a bit of a pet peeve I threw out there. I apologize. It was, no, but I uh, it was actually
2: that, <laughs> that last bit was very important for me because you know you you've always told me that you need to scan yourself, but I actually didn't realize that you completely replaced the ultrasound tech, which is is great, especially when you're starting out um, to be able to do and and not have to. You know, it's just one less expense to what you know when you start. So. Um, there's, that's plenty, actually really- like
1: said, there's plenty of good training out there. I mean, I, again, my Medtronic rep, they, uh, they sent me to a local physician to, to, you know, watch a few cases, uh, which of course is not enough. Let's just be honest. That's just not the same, right. but they all, I also went to a couple little uh, Venus ultrasound courses that were local to me and that helped me out a lot but I, but you know i'm not going to lie i've learned so much in the last 3 years about this disease that you won't find in a textbook and you won't find it in those courses because i've scanned them all myself and you know, does this perforator make a difference or not? You know, uh, why does this patient still have swelling even though I did their GSV and LSV? You know, these are things that oh, maybe I need to order a cat scan of the abdomen pelvis look from a Cerner. These are things that until you've done and seen hundreds of these patients and scanned them yourself, and then and then looked at what their leg looked like before and after you did your procedures and directly did it, you will never learn and. As you said, Aaron, in the very beginning, you're going to have plenty of time, and that's good time used as opposed to standing around watching other people work. Uh, So, yeah, sure, eventually, you know, and and, and certainly if I went full-time with veins, I think I would have an ultrasound tech because then you realize, look, if I train this person so, so good – I can get her, him or her to do 90% of the exam, and then I just walk in to scan where the varicose veins are. So if they've looked at is there a DVT or was there, do the major veins in the algorithm and, and logic that I give you, and then I come in as the expert and just lay on hands with a probe and just where I feel like looking, not for documentation purposes, as much just to, for me to get a road map, um, that's you know that that will happen, but I would suggest that if you're just beginning, you save the money and you gain the
2: experience by doing
1: everything yourself. Okay,
2: and then one uh, last burning question um, that I you know asked you initially when I first spoke to you, and I've and I've always asked everybody is is can you give a rough estimate for somebody um, the amount of capital required to start a vein clinic? And you know, you know, I know you budgeted. It seems like everybody I've talked to has, has budgeted pretty well, uh, but I just wanted to hear from you if you could give a rough estimate of maybe what you spend or, or what it would cost nowadays, you think?
1: Well, I, you know, again, I, because of my at least uh, friendship with some of the uh, local reps and, of course, 10 years of being here and, and buying, you know, God knows how much in, in stents, wires, catheters, et cetera, you know, I think that I was fortunate that I had some good advice, and and as I was mentioning earlier, you know, you can go crazy, uh, but and meaning that you know you can buy two of those fancy lift tables, and and you can get uh, uh, you know Monet on the wall, or you can get a thousand square foot office like I did that was fairly it was already sort of built out with the exception I had to knock down a wall. The other thing that I did, and may, may not have mentioned, and, and this features into the budget, is that I opened up in another facility with other doctors and the other one of the doctors was the owner. So he was obviously, uh, interested in my success and, and I, he wanted to make sure I paid the rent. And so, I was able to, A, secure a relatively decent deal on the rent in the building and also gain a friend who was obviously want to make sure I pay the rent. So, you know, it's easier to, to, to convince them that this is a disease and they should send you patients when you're downstairs So that helped reduce some of the costs immensely. I didn't buy a building. I rented I, I bought a relatively inexpensive ultrasound machine for about twenty-five, thirty grand. I can't remember honestly. I, you know, I went and cut a deal with the company, and that—that's on to buy the uh, RF ablation um, machine. When and so between the ultrasound and the RF. Uh, th- that accounted for at least half the budget, probably about sixty grand, and the rest was spent on, you know, miscellaneous things that you don't think of. Uh, you know, a, a build out if you're not in a in a perfect space initially, uh, that's going to cost you some money. Uh, and then there are things like the, you know, you need a table to put your stuff on. You need in- somewhere to put your inventory. You need computers. You know, you need. Uh, I got a, a a machine to sterilize the vein hooks for doing sclerectomy. I mean, you know, you need a coffee machine for your girl's break room. I mean, so there are there are things that need to be spent or money that needs to be spent, but the big ticket items. You know, the the uh, RF machine. I was able to work out a payment plan with them, so I didn't have to pay it all off at once. So they again, I think when you consider that they're. Your success is their success and they and you know the machine is only buying the car, but they want to sell you the gas as well as the car. And so once you've bought the car for thirty thousand dollars or whatever the going rate is, they that's fine and they make a one off on that and, and it's great. But they also want to get you to the point where you're buying five hundred catheters a year. And that's the gasoline to feed that car. And so, you know, you can say to them, look, I can't afford to spend fifty grand straight away. Can we work out a way I pay it off over a year with no interest? You know, you, these are things you can ask for. And, you know, they will give you in, 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 in any way they possibly can. So for me, you know, to summarize it all, I mean, we probably spent, I want to say, hundred and twenty, dollars 150000 initially. And that was budgeting like a year's worth of rent. Um, so, you know, I don't think it needs to be as onerous or as expensive as others have said. I believe, Aaron, you told me, you know, half a million dollars or, or in and out of that range. And I, I really don't think you really have to get that nuts. I mean, my patients think my office is beautiful because uh, we painted it nicely with paint. Uh, we bought some furniture on overstock.com that's modern to our, to our style. And that wasn't too expensive. And, you know, we we just decorated it nicely. But, uh but you know, uh, in a very uh, cost effective way, and so it didn't end up costing so much. I mean you don't need a waterfall in your waiting area straight away, you know?
0: Well, you yeah. know, I think what what you're talking about here, dr. Shiloh is is not just. Uh, you know, opening a vein clinic, but opening a business, you know, and what it takes to be an entrepreneur and and how you be a successful business person, which is important. And and it's fun. You know, at least I think so. And Mm -hmm. I think uh, a lot of folks that are getting into it also to Mm -hmm. see, you know, the opportunity for financial reward, the opportunity to not only be independent, but to do the things Mm -hmm. you truly enjoy doing and to, you know, um, to kind of, you know, have the joy and the pain, I guess, of running your own business. And I'll just say this, right. you know, you mentioned that you, you guys end up losing a little money in the, in the early days, uh, as you went through a learning curve, which I think is totally normal in any business. And, you know, the fact that you guys are still husband and wife, I think means you did something right in, in doing that whole thing. Cause that's also a tricky part of it. Um, oh, very difficult. So I do you want know, to mention uh, one yeah. other
1: thing. Is it possible? Uh, or are we out, well, out of time?
0: Go ahead. And we're going to, we're going to bring it to a close, but go ahead.
1: Well, so um, you know, again, you know, I just want to showcase one thing: is that in sometime in the when I said we transitioned to uh, a different website company, I did learn a tremendous amount about website, um, you know, keywords, about Google PPC, which stands for pay per click, you know, how that works, and you know, and how you how you get patients. and I'll tell you that today. I would say 80 to 90% of our clients come from quote unquote the internet. And they don't come from Dr. Smith, who I took out for lunch three years ago. They come because they found me through my organic presence, through my blog, through my uh, press releases, through my Google PPC. And I think it's a very critical element that we have to learn that particularly in certain areas of interventional radiology uh, and, and, and procedures that can be done you know, on an outpatient basis, there is a massive direct-to-consumer element that, that, is, that most physicians, and especially interventional radiologists, don't seem to grasp. And I think it's just from the years of just getting patients that are fed to them somehow magically, the, the patient fairy arrived and dropped off 10 patients, and they don't realize that today things have changed and that the old model of doing grand rounds and going to tumor board and all that, that may work in the hospital, but outside the hospital, people have a choice. And we all know that when we go to buy sneakers, we buy the, What's the best sneaker or the cheapest place? And they do the same thing with doctors now. Who's the best vein doctor around me? Who's the best for uh, whatever they search for? I have painful varicose veins. And you better be present there. Or if you're not, you will never get found. And, uh, you know, I guess I'll leave with that. I mean, I I do a lot of that. I manage it myself. There's an immense amount of data that I acquire from the company that I work with. And, uh, you know, it's very critical. It's the most critical element now of our practice. So I take full responsibility to do the SEO, to do the Google PPC, and also to do the social media because literally that is what feeds this beast. And, um, you know, people should really realize that it's a very critical element of it. You know, and if I could figure it out, uh, every one of you can do it as well. Uh, and if you can't, you know, I'm available to help, uh, you know, in, in any way that I can.
0: I think you're way ahead of the curve there. You know, you're right on point there, Dr. Shiloh. Let me say it like that. I mean, that, that is the world has changed. That is how businesses are being built. Thanks to Google. Thanks to the internet. You know, thanks to SEO and PPC. And, and like you said, you know, writing a blog and keeping yourself relevant and in the conversation. I mean, it's a great big world out there and people are buying everything online now, um, you know, from, from, vein services to, you know, to surgical devices even. So, uh, as we bring it to a close, one thing we, I did want to ask you about, you've got a course of some kind that, that goes on related to this. I guess, can you tell us a bit about that and and what that entails and
1: where we can find it? Sure. Sure. Of course. Thanks for asking about that. Actually. Um, you know, I guess I've kind of, you know, just feel like, in our society and, and uh, society of interventional and, and in general, that you know this disease is uh, under-treated, and the patients do suffer. And I, I could tell Aaron that once he starts seeing patients in his own office, he'll he'll soon realize that many of these patients, not all, you know, not the lady with spider veins, but many of them uh, really truly suffer. And and the, you'll soon understand that there's something that we have to offer if if only they can. Uh, you know, get to us and that we can feel confident how to do that. So, you know, we are, we, I, you know, now as part of my, uh, you know, experience, I, I want to share that. Um, and so we are offering, uh, courses either privately, either I can come out to someone's facility and, and help them, tutor them and get them started. Uh, they can come and, and do a one on one course or, uh, we're actually going to do this fall, um, The first, uh, you know, vein course uh, dedicated towards just literally how do you begin and how do you uh, end? In other words, you know, all the stuff we talked about here in the last 25, 30 minutes is, you know, obviously just scratching the surface and there is a lot more to it. And I am willing to try to share that with people so that they can get, uh, you know, A, how to learn how to do vein ablation, how to do sclerotherapy, how to do phlebectomy, how to do foam, um, how to do the initial ultrasound and the follow-up. And then that's just the clinical side. On the non-clinical side, I also teach how to you know, open the doors, how to get patients to come in through PPC, SEO. So I think it's very inclusive. We're, we're, we're planning on having a two-day course here in the Philadelphia area, like a Friday-Saturday course. You can go to my website, uh, which is drshiloh.com, and there's a section on the vein courses. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Shiloh, where I'll be making announcements as the course uh, arrives. And we're going to try to limit it to you know about 20 people so that it's not a a massive conference but rather a course it's fun some of you who follow me on twitter know that i have a side hobby which is to cook and smoke meat so i'm sure there'll be some uh cooking and uh, other things going on as well as your traditional uh course which you know again people who know me know it's going to be relaxed and uh and, a, and a, just an overall good time and, and really a good way to to fast forward to uh, having a more confidence to be able to open up a new office.
0: And now before we part, so a couple of things, drshiloh.com and at Dr. Shiloh on Twitter. Is that right?
1: That's correct. And, that is correct.
0: Okay. And we can find all the information about the course there, right? Yes. Awesome. Yes. And will we will you be smoking uh, pastrami? You know, we pork shoulder. What are we going to be doing uh, in advance of the course, there, Doctor ah, uh,
1: You know, who knows? Maybe we'll have to send out a uh, you know uh, a little brief questionnaire to see what people want. Uh, you know, we we do, I can make anything, but uh, charcoal, you know, really
0: to... charcoal, gas, or uh, oven, or all, how do you? It's
1: all, no, it's all it's all you know. I do all ceramic uh, sort of uh, big green egg style, but it's uh-huh. a different type. But I do uh, a lot of smoking of uh ribs, fish, chicken. I have to make a delicious buttermilk brine chicken that is to die for, probably the, the juiciest chicken you'll ever eat. And the ribs are absolutely crazy to come off the Kamado Joe. So uh it's a big ceramic smoker. You know, oh, yeah. hopefully uh that we'll be able to incorporate some good uh meat, fish, eating and uh and have a good time.
0: Well now I'm gonna have to come too.
1: <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> I might have a smoking course soon, okay? I'm getting it on We'll that. get 10 of these smokers, get 10 smokers. I actually thought about this, to be honest, for the course, is to try to rent or buy like five, 10 of these smokers. And as part of the course, we can make, uh, say, ribs in the morning, uh, you know, uh, season them up, throw them on the Kamado Joe, because it takes three, four hours anyway. Right. Bam, 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 go to your course. And for lunch, you eat the ribs that you made. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, that's what I'm talking got-
0: about. Hey, thanks, guys, for joining the Back Table Podcast. Thanks for thanks to Dr. Aaron Shiloh. Um, really great insight on opening a vein clinic, and uh, really appreciate your time here, and uh, we're looking forward to smoking some meat with you in
1: Philly in the fall. Oh, that's awesome, man. Thanks a lot, Anishin. Thanks, Aaron.